It's no secret that people love being connected with different devices, whether it's a phone, tablet, computer, or even a fitness device. But a new survey suggests that we are also looking for balance between the physical and digital worlds, and the issue of tech fatigue is starting to rise. We'll talk about some of the latest consumer technology trends on this episode of Today in Tech. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Joining me on today's show is Jana Arbanis. She is a principal for Deloitte, leading the telecom, media, and entertainment practice in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Jana. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, and so uh, let's get right into it. Uh, the, the company recently completed its 2023 Connected Consumer Survey, which explored how consumers are using their devices to provide more meaningful connections, better health, safer homes, and valued virtual experiences. So how did you guys start this uh, survey? And apparently it's now in its fourth year. And what what kind of trends are you hoping to learn from, from the survey? Yeah, absolutely. So we started this survey, as you mentioned, a few years ago, and we were really just seeking to understand how you know consumers were interacting with technology and sort of living a digital life. Um, and it was really focused on connected devices, mobile connectivity. Um, but then we really started to explore a little bit more about the actual types of devices. Devices have evolved since then, just in terms of, as you mentioned, smart home, wearables. And, and then as the pandemic came, we also started to look into things like virtual work and remote school and virtual healthcare and mm -hmm. sort of, again, the expansion of our digital lives. And so this year in particular, we were really on the other side of the pandemic, right? We wanted to understand how consumers' behaviors had specifically changed. Um, and so we basically, you know, wanted to determine had, you know, we all became very immersed in technology. We we're all using it all day, all the time. Had we kind of brought those on the other side of the pandemic, those behaviors, or did we create sort of a new normal where we sort of set down those things that we actually didn't find that valuable, but, per, you know, persisted with those that we, that we really liked. And so that's really what we were seeking to see is sort of, as you said, what is this balance that consumers have settled at yeah. in terms of this connected digital life? Now, now the survey uh, showed that the average household has 13 device types and 21 device, 21 devices. Uh, at first, when you see that number, it, it seems, wow, that's shocking. I didn't realize that the average person would have that. I probably have more than that because uh, I'm uh, a, a tech it. guy when you think about it. But, um, you know, do you find that number uh, higher or lower than, than maybe was expected? Um, and are you seeing that people are getting more devices or fewer devices? Or are they cutting back? Like, where does that number sit in, in, you know, terms of past surveys? Yeah. I mean, when, when you look at the number to your point, you, you sort of get a bit surprised about it, but yeah. actually when you sit back and think about what you have in your home, it's not surprising at all. Um, so I do think that the, again, as I said, the device types have evolved. And so we're, I think consumers are interested in seeing sort of what is out there. Um, what am I missing out on? What could I get value out of? But what was interesting is that we did see a decline in device types. So it tells me that like consumers were hungry again during the pandemic, making their lives easier. We were all in our homes all the time. And so perhaps there was sort of an uptick as as we were using, trying out different device types. And now we're sort of settling on like, okay, these are the devices that I'm actually gonna use on an ongoing basis when I'm not locked in my home all the time and when I have the ability to go in and out. I think the other thing that's interesting, right? So you have the device type. So that's like the discrete type of device. And then you have the total number of devices. Yeah. And that number is, you know, it was, is 25 um, and, and is dropped down to 21. So mm -hmm. again, I do think that there is a bit of a rationalization of like, 
do I really need this? Is it bringing me value? Um, not to mention sort of the economy, right? And I think consumers being a little bit more thoughtful about how they're spending, you know, their money. And when you think of it again about 21 devices in your home, that's a lot of money going to technology specifically. Yeah. And and do you classify a device or a device type as being something that is connected to uh, a network or the internet in, in general? Yeah. Is that where that delineation happens? Yeah. A connected device is sort of how we have defined it. Right. So I have a refrigerator, for example, but that wouldn't count unless it was connected to a network. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This was a smart fridge or something. All right. So let's let's jump into some of the the big takeaways from from this year's survey. Um, I think I've, I've noticed uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, about seven or eight different trends. And so I'm going to go through them and ask individual questions. Yeah. Um, yeah great. All right. The, the The first one was that uh, consumers are now seeking a balance between the digital and physical worlds. Um, it, especially with this issue of of tech fatigue, are you finding that people are uh, getting tired of their devices or what do you guys mean by tech fatigue? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, um, again, we all developed some habits, I would say during the pandemic when we were unable to be out in the world, interacting with other human beings, possibly bad um, habits, right? Of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so we're, we're finding that, you know, people are saying, well, now that I have the ability to go out and engage in person, I'm struggling with doing that because this is so easy, right? And and I've become, I've created such connections through my technology. So I think people are saying like, how do I balance this, this digital connection versus an in-person connection? And, you know, I think there is a belief that like, am I spending too much time on my device? If I'm, if I personally am spending most of my day looking at a laptop and then go home and spend my evenings, you know, looking at a, a, a phone, mm -hmm. you know, am I really getting the benefit of interacting with other humans? And so I do think that that consumers are trying to find that balance. And personally, as a parent, I'm trying to find that balance as well. During the pandemic, my kids were finding connection through devices because that's all they could, do, right. right? Like they weren't even going to school. So they were calling cousins, you know, across the country. They were gaming, you know, in a connected way. So now that we have the ability to go outside, what, 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 What's where's the right settling point? Yeah. I think and a lot of people are thinking about that. Are you thinking that this is possibly one of the reasons that, that companies like Apple or other uh, companies are starting to address these issues of screen time and um, kind of, you know, adding features that will help parents limit the time on uh, devices for their kids or even for themselves, for that matter, yeah. um, is, yeah, is because I, of this I, potential tech fatigue? I think that's exactly right. I think, um, you know, both device manufacturers and app developers want to participate in this kind of notion of consumers being empowered to set limits for themselves. And so I'm actually seeing it both on the app side and the device side in terms of nudges, reminders like, hey, you've sort of seen all that there is to see here. You could stop scrolling at this point in time. So I do think, and it's valuable. I think um, there is, w when tech companies don't do that, there's a little bit of mistrust with consumers. Like, help me manage this yeah. you know, appetite that I have, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and like again, the, with you know, you mentioned that that um, you're a parent as well, and I've got three teenagers, and uh, half the time, you know, they're on their phones and they're just kind of looking down at it and scrolling. Yeah. But then I find myself doing it as well, and I'm supposed to be the the, the adult here in some of these situations, right. <laughs> but I'm like, well, you know, I'm checking my Instagram feed, or I'm just looking and scrolling, or playing a game, and um, I have to remind myself, is like, wait, you're supposed to, you know talk to your kids as much as they're supposed to talk to you. Um, what, what, what did some of the results from your survey, you know, indicate about this need for putting some limits on, on, on device use? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the interesting thing and not surprising, right, is that parents are more concerned about the screen time than, you know, the younger uh, children, yeah. say, right? And again, there is an interesting thing around screen time and connectedness and our perception of the value of connected, you know, conversation. So you and I probably growing up, like we, we see a lot of value in that in-person connection. Our kids grew up in a different way. They they see tremendous value in that in that digital connection as well. And so, and it's actually enabling them to maybe find communities that they are not finding in the physical world, right, it, readily at school. So I do think that there's a bit of a balance there. Um, parents probably need to seek to better understand sort of the value of a digital connection. Our, our kids probably need to, to better understand, you know, the, the value of that in-person connection. So there's a, there's a healthy tension there. Yeah. And again, I'm hopeful that technology companies and app developers are helping to at least have the conversation, to your point, so that it doesn't become just sort of a mindless activity, you're sort of making choices. Like this is when I pick up my phone for a specific reason. And this is when I set it down because, you know, my rule is at dinner time, all the devices go away. We're, we're having a conversation. We're in person together. Yeah. But whether my son chooses to, you know, scroll through social media or, you know, talk on the phone with a friend or go outside, like, I'm not sure that, you know, I think there has to be a little bit of a, a, a negotiation. Right. Right. And, um, I think that this was this was part of the, the this section as well. Was uh, is there a, a desire for uh, consumers to better manage all of these devices that they have? It, was there uh, any indication of frustration between either connecting devices together or integrating them into a into a, a an ecosystem, or are they are they you know cutting back on devices because they don't want to manage a lot of the the details of the devices? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's another piece of the tech fatigue that we were talking yeah. about, which we also believe is the part of the reason that we saw a decline in the total number of devices. That it's just like one more thing to manage. Um, when you think about a device, sometimes you need an app to run the device, like one more app that I have to like manage and update. Um, and then I have, and then I actually maybe have a few security concerns around. So I need to like understand what the potential risks are with this app or with this device, and then manage that. So I do think consumers kind of have to continue to balance that sort of this is the value I get versus this is the the challenge that it presents and like how much more value can I get, you know, without just being frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go jump back to that, that social connection aspect of, of what we were talking about with, especially with, with kids. Um, have you seen a decline in uh, the use of connection systems like Zoom. I mean, I think in the work world, we're still using Zoom a lot. Obviously, we're using Zoom here uh, for this interview. Um, but like you mentioned, during the pandemic, there's a lot of people that were gaming. And I think I talked to my friends and family via Zoom during the pandemic. But then once we all started going out of the house again, I think we stopped that completely. And we're back to that social world. Are, did are, you know? Are you seeing evidence of that through the surveys that people are doing less of that digital connection? Yeah, I mean, I, I think your point about, you know, the the interpersonal way to connect, you know, during the pandemic, I think that has really reverted back yeah. to the pre-pandemic days. I would say still, though, that, that gaming is absolutely still on the rise. Okay. And I would say that the connected gaming is a more immersive experience that a lot of our millennials are looking for. So I don't anticipate that to go down. In fact, I probably anticipate it to go up as we see actually more consumers getting involved in gaming because it's starting to 
open up to different storylines that maybe aren't just first person shooter games. And so I think it's actually catering to a broader set of consumers. And so I anticipate that connected gaming to be going up over time. Do you do you have an example without naming any specific companies or or, or, or uh, groups that you're working with? But is it more of like a, a, a party game, a party game experience or what types of games beyond uh, like, a, a you know, the, the traditional first person shooters that you would say are, are becoming more yeah, connected? They're, they're more like sort of storytelling games that enables individuals to like make their way kind of choose your own adventure through a story and it's not just you know again a first person shooter game or something that's heavily violent like they're just they're more storytelling games and even actually you're seeing that in some of the sports games um there's more of a story element to it um and were, you know, historically, many of the most successful, um, you know, sports games were male driven. Yeah, we're seeing more uh, women um, sports games. And so that's pulling in more girls that are, you know, interested in sports, but didn't see themselves reflected in the games. And so they're getting more excited about that experience as well. Okay. And, w- and what about um, like esports too? Is that is that something that, that you're you're seeing is, is, you know, watching, watching either uh, esport events or, you know, um, contributing yeah. that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I, esports are still on the rise. Like, I still have a question as to like wh- where the trajectory is headed, and like at what point will it sort of reach a plateau? Yeah. But I, I think, yeah, esports is absolutely still on the rise. All right, let's go. Let's go on to the next. Uh, the next big trend that you were talking about in, from this survey was uh, data privacy and security worries are also on the rise, and trust is down. Uh, there was an interesting stat here. You said six in ten of uh, respondents say they are worried that their devices are vulnerable to security breaches the same number is also concerned that organizations or people could track them through their devices so it does feel like uh, maybe overall there's a lack of trust in the world uh, through you know recent events and and our, our people are now thinking that they're being tracked on their phone um, that's a little concerning isn't it yeah I, I, I definitely agree with that I think you know there's probably a period of time where uh, consumers were sort of maybe blissfully ignorant about sort of how device tracking works and why why location services are beneficial, but also can be dangerous, right, um, at different times. And so I think consumers are more savvy about that. And I, I do think technology companies have taken steps, again, to, to help the consumer. But this is an area where I feel um, consumers don't feel as em- empowered. We hear sentiments like, yeah, I've tried to use some of those privacy settings, but they're going to track you know, take my data anyway, or okay. take me anyway. Yeah. So th- I think there's still, uh, again, there is a way to secure your device and secure your data on your phone. But I think consumers, A, maybe feel a little bit distressful of that and B, maybe have a hard time navigating that and figuring out, okay, how do I, what should I be worried about for this type of an app? And then how do I proceed with like securing my my data and my location? How, how does a company kind of address that with or build trust for its customers uh is it just could it just be a factor of just making it easier or explaining why their their data is safe with them yeah i think there's it's probably both of those it's making it easier and maybe even providing nudges you know more regular nudges like you know for instance i had uh i think my phone told me you know a couple of weeks ago, hey, this app is still using your location. Do you want it to? Um, and then the consumer then can be reminded, oh, I meant to just turn it on for a period of time where I was doing something and I wanted to go turn it off. So I think more of those and then making that turn off process like quite easy. Yeah. The other thing I was kind of exploring with a colleague of mine was like, 
you know, how could, you know, apps and, and, you know, we all probably spend a lot of time on social media. How could apps make it easier through the use of, frankly, creators? How could a creator that I'm following help me understand, you know, privacy concerns and then literally go into the app and make those adjustments? And like, so could they be more of a push model relative to helping people just feel more secure and helping people feel like the technology companies care? Right, right. And, and I think you said that in the survey, more people are taking protective measures such as two-step authentication, turning off their location in Bluetooth, and installing security software. That's good. I think we've got a show coming up. We're going to be talking a lot about mobile uh, security and mobile app security. Yeah. Um, and so th- I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, I, I do have some issues with the two-factor and multi-factor authentication. Um, and if I can just go off on a tangent here for, yeah. uh, for a second um, and maybe get your advice is that it, it it's a particular company that we have three or four different email addresses and they've turned on two factor authentication. But then um, whenever I forget the password or I try to re sign in the two factor authentication goes to my wife's phone. And if she's not in the room with me to tell me the code or to say yes or to approve it, then it doesn't go through. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling yeah. as a family sharing of different email addresses of this. This 2FA stuff is a lot harder than it used to be. Well, and I, so I think that's a really great point. I mean, yeah. for the family sharing, it needs to be like really easy for families to be able to do that together. I totally understand your point. I mean, I think what they could do a better job of is having multiple types of two-factor authentication, right? It doesn't just have to be the text to the to the one phone number. I have a situation right now where I'm stuck where the phone number it wants to text the number to is my home number, right? which doesn't receive text. So, right. yeah, and right. I can't figure out a way to update it. So again, I think, yeah, the technology companies need to put themselves in our shoes and say, you know, if I really want to engage this consumer over the long haul, like I need to make it as easy as possible for them. And I just, I think in some cases that was, a reaction to perhaps a breach that occurred and and maybe it was a solution that was put in rather quickly. And I think it's so important to consumers. Yeah. The techno- all technology companies need to think start again and sort of think about what's the most intuitive way to do this for our consumers. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, still talking about security, but now moving into the, the home space. Uh, yeah. You found a, a lot of trends are that homes are becoming smarter, uh, but they are focused right now on security. So we've done a couple of episodes yeah. around uh the smart home and uh, the new matter standard and, and obviously the frustration of trying to get all of these devices connected and talking at the same time. I think there's an assumption that people want it, want their homes to be like Jarvis from Iron Man and, you know, have this virtual concierge doing everything for them. But then when they, they actually get down to try it, it's, it's horrible. Um, So, you know, some of the things from your survey, no single smart home device has reached more than 30% of households. And that smart home is now taking a, a backseat to security. So people are installing things like doorbells and remote cameras and things like that, correct? Yeah, people, yeah, that it, when you think about the range of things that a, a consumer could put in place to make their home more smart, I would say that the, what, the what's getting the most traction is the security devices, just as you said. Yeah. I think that's an easy business case, right, for someone to take the time to get it installed, put the app on the phone, manage the app to have that sense of security, especially when you're not near your home, I think is compelling enough. So then the question becomes, you know, how do these other apps that maintain other pieces of your smart home become compelling enough? And, and right now, to your point, they're all disaggregated. And so it just doesn't feel, for me personally, doesn't feel as compelling to worry about my lights and, you know, or even additional appliances. I, I'm not 
you know, excited about adding more apps to my phone. I would love some sort of an aggregation, yeah. you know, where I do a number of things in the same place. But I think right now without that, you know, it's, it just becomes again, that, that balance of sort of is the value versus the time that it takes to manage. Yeah. Are, are consumers, uh, worried about hacking uh, of some of these devices like maybe they wouldn't install this because they think that all right they're gonna you know criminals might see either the outside of my house or the inside of my house um i'm certainly not installing any cameras inside my house at the moment uh, but right. you know there are right. there are companies and, and and users out there that do like pet cams and things like that um but is there a concern that those devices could be hacked yeah, I do think that yeah. there is. I mean, I think people, again, you know, there was sort of a period of blissful ignorance for many of us in terms of just like, oh, this is a cool new technology. And then it was like, oh, gosh, now this camera or whatever is connected to the Internet. Could someone hack into it and see? Yeah, you know, like they had like nanny cams or or unlock my door. Right. If I had smart locks or something like that. So I do think. Again, it's it's healthy for consumers to be aware of the risks that are out there um, and challenge these organizations to, you know, provide them with very easy ways to secure those those devices on the Internet. All right. I, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So I think the skepticism just. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I keep hoping that we're that we're eventually going to get to that point where it will be easy to connect everything. Um, but I, I still don't see it, at least not this year. Right. All right. Uh, the next the next uh, item from the uh, the survey was talking about hybrid workers and that they are looking for the best of the in office and remote work uh, issues. Um, from your survey, you, you determined that hybrid workers are spending about three days in the office and two point six days at home. Uh, it, that matches other other surveys and trends we've seen. Correct. I mean, that's what is yeah. that about the, the what, what you're seeing? That's what we're seeing. We're starting to see a number of companies, certainly where I live, that are announcing that sort of more specificity yeah. relative to three days in the office. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it, it seems to be a good balance for people as long as it's fixed. What we see not being a great experience is when it's sort of left up to the employee, like we'd like you to come in three days a week. Um, and then they go through all the hurdles of trying to show up and then no one's there because yeah. they picked the wrong day and right. everybody picked Thursday and they picked Tuesday, right? Yeah. Or when it's like Monday night and you get an email and says, Hey, I need you to be in the office tomorrow. And you're like, Oh shoot. Like I was supposed to drop off my kids at school. Right. I don't have coverage for my dog or, you know, whatever that happens to be the lack of being able to sort of plan ahead and count on that consistency. I think has been the biggest stressor for people that are still in this limbo. Yeah, what I what I, I've seen some stories. I think there was one in the Wall Street Journal that talked about there are a group of of uh, workers and employees that they just don't like their coworkers, so um, they're <laughs> being told to work three days in the office. So they work like on Monday, Thursday, Friday would be like the three the <laughs> least populated days. And we're like, well, the I was in the office days. on those. You know, I, I met your commitment to you know your requirement for right. three days. They just picked the three least populated days. Um, right. I, I think that well, this is going to be an issue for another year at least. Yeah, at, at least. And I, my my thing, and, and frankly, as an organization, we're grappling with this as well. But, you know, it's it's tough to compel people to go into the office simply to say for the act of being in the office. If I'm going to be in the office, I want to have conversations with human beings. I want to collaborate and collaborate on something that's hard to do over, you know, uh, you know, over my laptop. So I think not only do companies need to think about that consistency piece and transparency, like this is our expectation of everyone, but then also like encourage the type of work to be different than how we work when we're sitting at home. Yeah. Uh 
Uh, and another interesting question that you asked was uh, some complaints about technology and um, connectivity have gone up, uh, that work systems aren't functioning well enough and maybe that there's uh, some hardware refreshes and uh, software updates that need to happen. It w- I guess, do you think a lot of people during, if they're remote working, that they're just using their personal broadband connection or was there, uh, you know, uh, businesses that were pushing higher quality connections to their remote employees? There were some. Yeah. But I think, you know, frankly, again, during the pandemic, I think that was a very reactionary state when nobody knew how long it would last. So yeah. I would say the majority of companies did not invest in supporting Wi-Fi at their at, at their um, employees' homes in, in very limited cases. If this is going to be the new normal, I do think that there is needs to be a conservative effort about making that experience a good experience so that they're actually getting the productivity that they want from their folks. And that, that's probably hardware. It's probably software. It's the you know VPN infrastructure to enable you to access files that are on the network when you're not in a physical office. So I think there's a lot that needs to go into it in order to make the best out of the hybrid model. Right, right. All right. And we're gonna, I'm going to shift to another uh, topic, uh, but it's related because this is uh, remote remote in um, in nature remote learners are finding success with virtual classes what what's interesting from this trend is that um, all right so the number was 23% of respondents said at least one member of their household is attending virtual classes at least some of the time that 23% to me sounds like a really high number i figured that you know remote learning just went off the cliff once everybody was able to go back to school um, are there certain areas where this is still happening is it is it higher education and maybe corporate training where you're seeing this versus, you know, the, the elementary and, and secondary markets? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think higher education is probably where you'll see it. I mean, I think there are op- there's more optionality, frankly, for a student if they were going to take a semester at home or abroad in some capacity and being able to, to participate more virtually in classes. Yeah. I even see it in sort of the high school um, where like if you're you have sort of part of the week is off, they might have virtual classes for a couple of days to enable people to travel or something like that. Right. So there's just more optionality and flexibility, which, frankly, I think is great. Right. I mean, I think it, it, it it's, it's helping, I think, um, education advance. And then I also think that because of the way that um, learning was delivered virtually, there has, it has opened up more possibilities. So I actually think that more people are able to, able to access education virtually than they were able to before. I think um, higher education institutions are looking to provide that access yeah. more readily now that they know how to do it. Did did you say, did you see that? Did you find that number surprising? The the twenty three percent? Yeah, I was a little surprised that it was that high. Still, yeah. to your point, because I don't think we're certainly not seeing elementary school age children participating virtually in in class. What was was that one of those moments where it was such a big uh, tech failure to to just. To, to say nicely, I guess, um, is there a chance that this technology could rebound or was it so bad widespread because so many people were doing it at once that uh, people just said, yeah, this was an idea that maybe we shouldn't explore. <laughs> Did you have a, a camera into my home when I was trying to navigate getting my sign connected? <laughs> oh, boy, I could I could tell you some horror stories from my three kids. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was pre- it was pretty bad for what what Wyatt went through, and I'm a tech savvy guy, and and just yeah. experiencing a lot of these virtual calls uh, with other students and parents that were not tech savvy, um, and right. then and but just even the experience of the learning, uh, it was always just like it, we were trying to treat our children like 
they were uh, corporate employees because every virtual each or every session was watch this PowerPoint, watch this video, take a quiz. Right. And it was like there was yeah. no interaction back and forth. It was, um, yeah. and even the teachers that did try to have live Zoom calls were probably spending half the time just setting up and making sure everyone could hear them before you could even and get to a lesson. On mute. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think yeah. that if if there were, we're ever going to explore a world of virtual learning again for for kids, uh, it has to be something completely different. And I'm sure it'll be something like, oh, buy all this hardware and it'll be all VR at some point. And I'm just going to shake my yeah. head when that comes around. Well, maybe you'll have a hologram teacher of your own, right? That uses Gen AI to, right, <laughs> to right. give you just the lesson that you need on that day. Yes. Jarvis, I do, so I do think, yeah, go ahead. I think again, higher education will lead on this. I think, yeah, I, I don't think I'm seeing a big upwell of support to kind of have kids learn from home. Um, I, they, they know that it's an option. I don't think that everybody cast it aside though because i do think again the access piece is really important yeah. and i think you know higher education has more of a, a focus on how do they engage a broader set of constituents through virtual learning all right uh moving but on you're right. we, get better. we've still got a couple of others that i want to jump into um uh all right your next one was connected consumers are shifting their focus from virtual healthcare and fitness from tracking uh in fitness track from tracking biometrics to a fitness app um i, I that was horribly written by me i'm sorry about that yeah. um all right so in this health and fitness and, and medical area 42 percent have done at least one virtual medical appointment uh was yeah. that number high or lower than what you expected it's coming down a little bit, but um, I'm happy to see that it's hanging around that. I mean, there, that, that's a sizable percentage, in my opinion, which basically means that, as I was saying, this whole dimension of like value versus, you know, um, challenge, like there's value in that. For me, I had, a, I had a virtual doctor's appointment. I didn't need, we needed to have a literal 10 minute conversation. I didn't need to get in the car and navigate parking and try yeah. to go sit in the office for a while. So it really depends on the type of care that you need at that moment in time. If it's something chronic, it might, and you're just sort of doing a check-in, that could save you hours of time, right? It saves a doctor's time and enables them to see more patients. So I think there's value in specific things. Of course, we saw a bit of a decline because everybody had to do virtual health during the pandemic. So it's come down a little bit. And again, I think it's settling in a place where people find real value and convenience from it. Yeah, and and another thing that you you, you saw was that um, fitness tracker devices are are going down, or there there's not as many as they used to be. But now, um, smart watches, where fitness, I guess, is is part of the smart watch, yeah. uh, are are going up. Um, that does that doesn't feel surprising to me because it, it it does seem like when I look, at more people are doing, and then I look at what some of the companies are announcing with features. It's all very very fitness related, so that didn't surprise right. me. Um, but but then also what is also down is the monitoring heart rate, calories, and blood oxygen while counting steps and measuring speed and distance and tracking performance is, is up. Um, what does that indicate to you in terms of yeah. what consumers are either looking for or can they do something with that data? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that during the pandemic, people were hyper-focused on their health. I mean, you saw blood oxygen there. I mean, that to me was a real indicator of people just wanting to to manage their health, knowing that they couldn't go to a doctor or couldn't go into yeah. the hospital. And now that they have the ability to do that, it's focused more on fitness. And I think fitness has always been sort of an attractor for people, people like me who are like, oh, I should stand up. <laughs> um, you know, I've been sitting at this desk all day kind of a thing. And so I, I do think that, that there's a real value there. There's just less kind of urgency around monitoring my own health because now I can kind of return to my previous practices of seeing my doctor on a regular basis. Right, right. Now, an interesting part of this uh, part of the survey was there was a concern that uh, 
all of this data that I'm collecting on myself. So let's say I've got a watch and it's, it's tracking a lot of things. Maybe I've got a sleep tracker at home. It's monitoring my sleep. Um, if I snore a lot, that kind of stuff, but none of that data can get then sent to my, my doctor. It would be great if, if somehow those two worlds could be connected. Um, and we're not yeah. seeing a lot of movement on that. Do you, do you know why is it, is it just too difficult for a lot of these healthcare organizations to do that? Or they're just not interested in, in seeing that data. No, I do think that they're interested in yeah. seeing that data. I think it's it's a pretty sizable challenge, though, in terms of how the data is collected, how comfortable they are relative to the accuracy of that data and whether or not they'd want to place value on that data. And then, as you can imagine, the different health systems that would need to like intake that. So in, in my opinion, it's like screaming for, again, some sort of an intermediary that comes in and, and, and takes in data from a variety of different device, you know, trackers and feeds it out to a variety of different health systems and Try to be that sort of middleman. Yeah. So I won't be surprised if that comes into place over time, but we really need someone to come in and solve it holistically. Um, because just so the ones and twos is just it's it's not going to be valuable. And I think again, the health systems have a lot of concerns and questions about the accuracy of that data and the value of it. And so we need somebody to come in and kind of clean that piece up. Yeah, I, I feel like the initial outreach of from my doctor on this would be they would give me a device that they trust. Uh, and right. can connect to rather than, you know, allowing me to basically pick my own device and, and then they don't know if yeah. it's going to work or not. I, um, I actually took my mom to a doctor's appointment and she was so proud of, you know, some device that she had tracking her blood pressure. And the doctor was like, I would never, never rely on that. Oh, really? And she was so So, so your mom like, was all happy and her doctor basically just shot her down like that. That's yeah, not and nice. She was like, that's completely inaccurate. Oh, boy. Oh. That's, that's the rub. You should have just said, listen, listen, I'm a tech person. I know that this worked. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, when we looked at the actual figures, I wasn't actually totally convinced that it was working. Oh, accurately. okay. Yeah, that's true. That's like like a lot of those um, uh, cheap thermometers that came out during the pandemic where you point it at your head and it tells you. Like I used one the other day and it said I had a fever of 101. I'm like, well, wait, no, that's just way too high. Yeah. I mean, I have a cold at the moment, but like 101 now. Um so anyway, all right, moving on to, to our next one was uh, 5G. And I, lo- and I love the, the data on this. I'm a, I'm a big network guy uh, yeah. at heart. And you, so adoption has been rapid of 5G, but uh, the, the survey indicates that consumers are still waiting for a killer app. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you found about, about 5G? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think 5G and we could even go back a couple of years for our survey. and yeah. There was a lot of excitement from consumers like they were hearing a lot about it, a lot, about a, a lot of like what it would enable for them. But, you know, and so there was excitement. People were opting to buy 5G enabled smartphones. Right. And spending more money for those. But as they got them, I think there's sort of like a, a a feeling that there's nothing has changed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the connectivity is just as good as it was before, maybe slightly better in terms of calls. But is there an app that is changing my life in a different way that couldn't have worked before and now only works on this 5G phone? They really haven't seen that. They haven't seen that like tremendous value. So I think it's still sort of a wait and see as to how important 5G is for consumers specifically. Yeah, we, we just did an episode on on the 6G, which is probably about seven years away from, from being deployed. And that issue came up is that 5G didn't really move the bar in terms of consumer acceptance. Uh, and so it, it feels like carriers are going to have a challenge to try to convince consumers that 6G, oh, we mean it this time. You're really going to be able to do this really cool stuff on this, on this, on this next right. network. Um, I think that's a great point. There will be a real gap 
relative to expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did find that people are holding onto their phones slightly longer, um, slowing the pace. Um, uh, Chris, our, our director here, uh, we, we did uh, this little shorts clip recently where he, he doesn't get a new phone uh, for five years. So his phone is now, he, he refreshes his phone every five years. And um, I said that, that he was being a little, that he was an anomaly. Um, but now he's got the survey data to back him up that you, you're saying that people are holding onto their phones slightly longer. I'm not one of those type of people that does it every year, but I'm in the middle there. Um, but you are finding that, that people are holding onto their phones longer. Did they give you a reason why? It's just because the technology isn't really that much better. Well, I think it's a couple things, yeah. right? I mean, I definitely think that there is an element of cost involved, right? Certainly over the last couple of years, there's some, some uncertainty with respect to the economy um, and what's sort of going on there um, has made people a little bit just like more reserved in terms of what they're willing to spend money on and, and how quickly, to your point, they're willing to sort of like refresh. Um, so I think that is number one. And then number two, yeah, I do think that there's a question as to if the only thing I think that's meaningfully different about this version of the phone is, you know, some capability around 5G, and I still don't understand exactly how that's going to benefit me personally, yeah. then I think that there's another, you know, um, question as to like, does it make sense for me to to upgrade my phone at this time? So I think it's both of those things. One aspect of 5G that I have found interesting that I use a lot more than I did before was using the phone as a hotspot. Uh, when I'm in when I'm in an area that doesn't have Wi-Fi, and of course, there's not a lot of areas left that don't have Wi-Fi. Um, but uh, just as an example, I I, I played D and D with a bunch of uh, other other guys, and we play in this barn of this one guy's yeah. house, and so we can't connect to his Wi-Fi at his house. Um, so I end up using my my 5G as a hotspot to connect to the computer uh, for for some that's, of that stuff. I so, mean that's that's I mean that's a great example. My example is when we're on, in a on a road trip. Yeah, and I'm I use my phone as a hotspot for my kids, <laughs> right, to connect a device and watch a movie or yeah, something this like while, that. Yeah, just like, like while you're mobile in the car. Yeah. Yeah. And and, yeah. and 5G is definitely better for that than it was probably where definitely 4G. Definitely better for that. So you don't yeah, get any yeah. skips and latency. That wouldn't have been an option, right? Before, but I, yeah, yeah, I think you know we've all become so hardwired to connectivity, like we expect it to be ubiquitous and low latency at all times, kind of a thing. So it's funny that like we're saying like, wow, that I mean that's kind of a big deal for you to be able to play a game, you know, using your phone as a hotspot. But like I don't know, people sort of think that that's like no big deal anymore, right? Yeah. I, I still get annoyed when I turn on Netflix at night and and I and it and it takes forever to load up a show or a movie and I'm like, come on, it's 2023. We should have solved oh, this yeah, problem. I'm a like, little impatient on those things. Oh, I know. Oh, if I have to restart my computer, I'm mad. <laughs> yeah, we've become so spoiled as consumers. I think in the last like 20 years, but um, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it, it's definitely interesting. And so, you know, th there were a couple of. Uh, topics or trends that you talked about when we look into the future. One of them was immersive 3D. And obviously, we, we can't do an episode of this show without talking about generative AI. Um, and you did you did talk about that as well. Um, so let's jump into this immersive 3D. Is is this what is maybe the metaverse at some point? There, this, this VR, AR thing, there's, there's really not a lot of interest from our audience at this point in, in, in this technology, even though I'm trying to, to, to hype it up as much as I can. Um, but your survey suggested that younger generations are, are interested in this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think younger generations are already experiencing that. And right, it runs the whole gamut to your point. I mean, metaverse technologies are inclusive of what is available today in terms of augmented reality or virtual reality. I mean, you can, I can use my phone to, to look at a couch in my living room. I mean, that is, you yeah. know, augmented reality in, in and of itself. And so I do think the millennials are much more open to that, especially in our, in our Gen Z's. Gen Z's in particular are the ones that are going to lead on this. They're, they're going to expect that type of experience. Um, so they're looking for that. They're seeking it out. Yeah. Whereas I think some of us, you know, older generations are sort of passively waiting to say, again, what's the killer app? What's going to bring me to want to buy that device and engage in that way? It's got to be really compelling for them. Whereas Gen Zs, you know, they're they're already spending so much time interacting in the in the digital world. In fact, more time in the digital world than they are in the physical world. And so, enhancing that experience in the digital world is a no brainer for them. And so, happy to sort of like test things out and engage in that. And I think they will be the ones that push companies more toward this model. Right. Right. And. What's interesting to me, I think, with the metaverse was that everyone got so excited about it so fast that someone decided that there needed to be a business metaverse. And and that's where I think that everyone went wrong, because everyone's like, there's no way I'm going to go to work and put this headset on just to talk to someone who's right across the hall from me. Um, it, it, that just seemed really, really like a bad idea. And maybe a metaverse could... Could if you know just stick to gaming and stick to maybe some personal lifestyle entertainment things like virtual real estate uh, demos and things like that. If I'm buying a home, I want to see what the inside of the home looks like, you know, like that. Yeah, but stay away from the business stuff. But you know that's yeah, just me. That's I guess. I mean, as we continue hybrid work, you know, is there an opportunity to leverage that specifically? I think around like not getting on a plane, right, yeah. and having a more in-person experience. There's you know some models around the future of learning. And how, you know, you could really um, enable someone to experience what the, you know, depending on what they're doing, right, experience the job before they actually go on site for the job. So I think there are some use cases. Do I think that we're all going to be sitting at our desk all day, every day with a headset on? Yeah. What what were the results when you asked about generative AI? Because I think it was still probably in the early phases when when you were asking this question, right? Because we're, we're yeah. only about a year out now. Yeah, we didn't. And so we didn't ask specifically about like chatbots or, you know, what exactly. But we do know that that our Gen Z's are already interacting with that technology quite a bit and they're willing to use it. They we have a high number of um, respondents that say they will continue to use it. Um, and and it, we should predict that of all of the generations to come, they're going to be the early adopters. And then they're going to be the ones that are pushing these companies to do more and integrate it. And then us older generations are going to sit back a little bit and then ultimately sort of catch up is sort of my prediction on that. So I think that we're going to start to see, I think there's Gen AI that we're interacting with today that we don't even know about, right? right that right. it's just already inherently being built in. Um, and so there's the sort of the piece that's like enabling what happens today. And then there's a futuristic piece that's like brand new business models, brand new ways to create entertainment. You know, I think gaming will have a real big um, change and shift relative to Gen AI. So I just think it'll it'll change how things are produced and how we interact with things in a way that we haven't quite contemplated yet. But don't, let's be clear, I think all of us are interacting with Gen AI today. Right, right. And so you don't think that this is a, a fad or a phase that maybe some of these other hype technologies have, have been in the past? 
No, it's definitely not. And I think um, there's so much, you're right. I mean, the hype level like went up very high, but I think there's like sort of a sticking if you come, you know, compare and contrast it to other trends that, that have come out really quickly. And it's, it has a foothold in the business world to your earlier point. Yeah. And when that happens, I think that, that it will explode in terms of what we think it can accomplish in the business world. And that will create even more innovation for consumers. Right, time. right. So is this is this now definitely an annual uh, survey that that Deloitte does with, you know, because of, of, of what you've seen in the past four years? Or do you take a break and maybe do other, you know, maybe hold off before you do the, your, your next one? I think I think we're finding really valuable information and insights. And so I think we'll continue to do that. Yeah. We have another one that we do around digital media trends. We've been doing that for about 18 years. So that that longitudinal study is really helpful for us and our clients to sort of think about, you know, these trends. Sometimes we have our clients will say to us, well, gosh, I think it's just a fad to your point. Yeah. And that these you know, these Gen Z's like they'll grow out of it. And like we really have found with these longitudinal studies that they don't tend to grow out of it and they really actually lean into it and then they become kind of the leaders right relative to technology adoption so this piece around consumers and how we're all interacting with technology through work life and play i think is really valuable insight for our clients all right so the next time you have a, a cool survey that comes out uh, we'll, we'll definitely get you on the show again and, and chat about it I, I love chatting about this kind of stuff so uh, uh thank yeah. you jan for for being on the show with us today yeah, thanks for having me, Keith. All right, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, add any comments that you have below. Join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Thanks for watching.